We're looking at 2 Corinthians. Paul is writing from Macedonia. We don't know exactly where, maybe from Philippi. He's writing to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians. This is about the year 56. What does that mean? Well, Paul's probably been in ministry for 30 years. Probably 30 years. He's got about 10 more years. And he's going to be executed in Rome. So he's coming near the end of his ministry. This is the end of his third missionary journey here. Where Paul is in Macedonia writing to the people in Corinth. We've mentioned that Paul has written a number of letters to the Corinthians. He wrote a letter before 1 Corinthians. That letter is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Paul wrote that maybe around AD 55, 54, this previous letter. It's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. In 1 Corinthians 5, 9, he says, I wrote you in that previous letter not to associate with certain sexually immoral people. And then he writes 2 Corinthians from Ephesus. From Ephesus. He spent three years in Ephesus. He writes 2 Corinthians. And then we noticed last time he made a painful visit over to Corinth. That's mentioned in 2 Corinthians 2.1. So everything we're talking about, this second letter, the painful visit, the sorrowful letter, is all mentioned in 2 Corinthians. We're reading 2 Corinthians. We're studying 2 Corinthians. But he refers back in 2 Corinthians to that painful visit in 2 Corinthians 2.1. And then... He comes back to Ephesus after that visit and he writes a letter, a severe letter or a sorrowful letter. 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4 we talked about last time. And now he's gone to Macedonia and he's writing 2 Corinthians. But he's referring back to that painful visit. He's referring back to that sorrowful letter. We're looking today at uh, 1 Corinthians We've seen the greeting and thanksgiving. We're looking at the section 112 through 716, where Paul defends his ministry against criticism. 112 through 716. The first section, Paul defends his conduct. 112 through 213. And... We started off by talking about the Corinthians' complaints. The Corinthians had various complaints against Paul. So we see some of that in 1 Corinthians. When Paul writes 1 Corinthians, we can see that there are certain things the Corinthians are complaining about. And then he makes that painful visit over to Ephesus, and they have more complaints about the Apostle Paul. And so he writes that severe letter. Now he's writing 2 Corinthians, and he's dealing with some of those complaints. Like Paul writes obscure letters... Paul changes his travel plans. He can't be counted upon. He's kind of fickle. He says one thing, he does another. Paul has a domineering attitude. You know, he's trying to tell us what to do all the time. He's just kind of bossy, that kind of thing. We're looking now at uh, Paul is still defending his conduct against... uh, Now he's talking about forgiveness for the offender. I say here right underneath that, I say mention of the grief that the severe letter had caused the Corinthians. That's back just in the previous verses there. He says in verse 4, For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart 
with many tears, not to grieve you. That wasn't my purpose. Now I did grieve you. But to let you know the depth of my love for you. So mention of this severe letter and the grief that it caused and so forth uh, leads Paul to think also about the pain that the offending person had caused the church. Verse 5, he says, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you, to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So Paul made that visit, that painful visit that we talked about. Paul made that painful visit. And when he made that painful visit, he got some opposition from a particular individual. Um, And so he writes this severe letter saying, you need to deal with this fellow. This fellow is opposing me. He has no right. We don't know the details of what all was going on there. But somehow, when Paul visited, they didn't stand up for the Apostle Paul. Here was a guy who was opposing Paul, who shouldn't have been doing it, and they weren't dealing with it. So Paul sends Titus with this severe letter. And in this severe letter, he's talking to them about this particular problem. And from what we read here is, they dealt with it. When Titus came, took the letter, they dealt with this guy. They said, you're right, Paul. This guy has spoken out of turn. What he said wasn't right. And so Paul now is saying, okay, this guy has repented. Titus has come, the severe letter, the church has, has, has talked to this person. This person has repented, and so now you need to forgive him. And that's what's going on here. And so he kind of minimizes the pain to him. If anyone has caused me grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. So, uh, we don't know why this person was opposed to the Apostle Paul. People guess at various things. They say, you remember back there in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, that fellow who committed incest, kick him out of the church. Some people may have said, hey, that's kind of harsh. We don't normally, that's, that's, don't, don't do that. Don't, this guy's a Christian. He's a brother. We don't got to kick him out. That's possible. We don't know. Anyway, somebody objected to Paul what Paul had advised. And Paul says, you need to deal with this. Well, they have. Uh, as I say here next here, probably on the basis of uh, Titus's report about the Corinthians' reaction to the severe letter, Paul counsels the church to terminate the discipline they had inflicted. Now, later on in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll read about the fact that Titus has come back to Macedonia. Remember, Paul is writing from Macedonia. He sent Titus with a severe letter, Titus has joined Paul in Macedonia, and the, the Corinthians reacted positively to the severe letter. They, they disciplined this guy, and notice what Paul says. When we came to Macedonia, we had no rest, because I had sent Titus with that severe letter, and I'm worried. What's the Corinthian church going to do? What are they going to say? How are they going to respond? We were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside. Fear was of them. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So Titus comes back from Corinth after delivering the severe letter, joins me, and I'm writing 2 Corinthians to you now. And not only us, but by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow. They were sorry 
about the fact that they hadn't stood up for the Apostle Paul. They hadn't defended him when he was there on that visit, that painful visit. Your ardent concern for me so that my joy was greater than ever. So Titus comes and brings a good report. The, the Corinthians have responded generally positively to that severe letter and things are better. The relationship between the Corinthians and Paul is much better now. And Paul is rejoicing. We'll see that in chapter 7. So Paul now is saying, I agree with the majority view. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority, that's sufficient. Verse 7, now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. So the Corinthians now are instructed, as I say here, to refrain from continuing or increasing the punishment, because there could be some people in the church who say, this guy who opposed the Apostle Paul, get rid of him. I mean, I don't, I don't believe his repentance. You know, I mean, there's different reactions in the church. This guy opposed Paul. Some could be saying, we, we need, he needs greater punishment. He, he didn't really get enough here. Paul says, no, I agree with the majority. He's, he's repented, and that's good. So uh, the point here is that, well, if you think about what Jesus said, Jesus said in 17.3, if your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. If they repent, forgive them. And so this guy has repented. Paul accepts that repentance that the church has, has, has said he's repented. And so by going ahead and forgiving this guy, restoring him, they would be doing what the apostle says. They would be saying, yes, Paul, we accept your authority as an apostle. Verse 10, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, now here he's minimizing the damage done to him. He's speaking like, well, this really wasn't that big a deal. If there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not, might not outwit us, we're not aware of his schemes. So as I say, Paul aligns himself with the Corinthian decision to forgive the person, a decision he trusts will bring, will be, will make, they will make after receiving the present letter. And so he says, what you, your verdict of forgiveness is my verdict of forgiveness. And clearly, we see in verse 10, this was a personal attack against Paul. It's a personal offense because he says, anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven. Paul has to forgive. Some people misunderstand what's going on here and they think, are we talking about the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5? In the situation in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul calls out the church because there's a case of incest. And he says, you need to discipline this guy out of the church. He hasn't repented. Discipline him. Well, that's not this case. Because the, the man in 1 Corinthians 5 did nothing to the Apostle Paul. He didn't, it was not a personal attack on the Apostle Paul what that man did. He sinned, but he sinned against the church. It wasn't against Paul. This is against Paul, whatever happens here. And Paul says, I have to forgive this. I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. I say at the end of verses 10 and 11, Paul gives the reason he is granted forgiveness. It was for the welfare of the Corinthians, for your sake, to avoid being outwitted by the master strategist Satan who was bent on creating discord within the church at Corinth, either between the church and a large 
and dissident minority are between the, the repentant wrongdoer and his fellow Christians. So to withhold forgiveness here is to play in the hands of Satan. Satan's already got an advantage because this this thing this guy has spoken against Paul. He sinned against Paul. Satan got an advantage there. Don't let Satan get another advantage by not doing the Christian thing here, Paul says. This guy has repented. He needs to be forgiven. That's what we should do in these particular situations. Christian discipline is meant to be restorative. It's not meant to be punitive. It's meant to be remedial. So when we have someone in our church say that we have to discipline out of the church because they have sinned publicly, they have gone against Scripture, they have sinned publicly, we have to remove them from the church. We don't do it because we hate them. We do it because we, at First Corinthians 5, because we want to restore them. We hope, we're hoping, as we put them out in the world, that they'll come to their senses, that they'll realize they're wrong, they'll repent, and they can be restored. And that's what Paul says here. That's our purpose. Now we come to chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. We're still dealing with Paul's defending his conduct. He's defending his conduct against their complaints. He's defending his conduct about this offender and what they should do about that. And now his travel, he's going to talk about a revised travel plan. Because remember, we talked about last week, Paul had these various travel plans. He had to change them because of varying circumstances. Here's his new travel plan. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. So remember, this is what happens. Paul is in Ephesus. It's from Ephesus that he writes the previous letter, 1 Corinthians 5, 9. It's from Ephesus that he writes 1 Corinthians It's from Ephesus that he makes the painful visit. He goes over to Ephesus. He comes back. He writes the severe letter, and he sends that severe letter by Titus. And so now he's waiting for Titus to come back. We jumped ahead to chapter 7 where Titus has come back, but he's waiting for Titus to come back. And he says, I decided to go to Troas to preach the gospel. So he's going up here to Troas, But he says, I didn't have any peace of mind because I didn't find Titus. Apparently, Titus is supposed to come back with news about the severe letter, how the Corinthians have received it. And Paul says, well, I didn't find any peace of mind, so I went on from Troas and I went on to Macedonia. Now, we know from 2 Corinthians that he met Titus in Macedonia. We just read that in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and he got a good report from the Corinthians. I say here... This is the final section in the explanation of his recent conduct. Titus, as we have said, had been sent to Corinth with a severe letter, while Paul continued in his ministry a little longer in Asia. Though verse 12 only gives Paul's intent to evangelize in Troas, I went to preach the gospel of Christ, the open door probably suggests at least some actual, at least minimal preaching the gospel. We don't know for sure how long Paul was there. We do know that in a few months, Paul will come back through here. That is, Paul is in Macedonia now. He writes 2 Corinthians, and then he goes to Corinth in Acts chapter 20. And he spends three months in Corinth. Now, that's getting ahead of us. All right, Three months in Corinth. He's going to write the book of Romans from Corinth. And then he's going to trace his steps back through here and come back to Troas, Acts chapter 20. 
And that's, remember, where he preaches all night and the fellow falls, Eutychus falls out the window, you remember, and, and, and Acts chapter 20 like that. So, uh, so, so there was a church in Troas in Acts chapter 20 a few months later. So when was this evangelized? We don't know exactly. Did Paul do some here? It's very possible that he did. Now notice uh, this next paragraph. At this point in the text, we begin what is sometimes called the Great Digression. Remember I said, this is one of the hard things about this book is that Paul takes these uh, digressions. I was trying to be nice, but Smokey called them rabbit trails. (laughs) So uh, they are kind of rabbit trails. Paul goes off on these sort of rabbit trails, and now he seems to go off on a rabbit trail here, beginning in chapter 2 and verse 14. Because if we were to look at the text here in 2.13, Paul said, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. Chapter 7, verse 5. For when we came into Macedonia, we had no rest, but we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, fears within. By God who comforts the downcast, comforts us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so my joy. So you could jump from 2.13 to 7.5 if you just wanted to pick up Paul's narrative, his explanation of what's happening in his life. So all of a sudden now, we finish chapter 2, verse 13. I had no peace of mind. I did not find my brother Titus. I said goodbye. I went to Macedonia. Verse 14, but thanks be to God, who always leads us captives in triumphal in, in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of knowledge. We just kind of change subjects all of a sudden. We just switch subjects just right out of the blue. We're on to some different little subject here. <coughs> so that's why sometimes it's called a, the great digression. Paul interrupts the description of, the church, of his search for Titus, which he does not resume until 7.5. Paul suddenly shifts from anxiety, I still had no peace of mind, to thanksgiving, but thanks be to God. Some commentators suggest that this digression is brought about by Paul's remembering his happy reunion with Titus in Macedonia, who brought encouraging news from Corinth that thus relieved Paul's distress. In the favorable Corinthian reaction to the severe letter reported by Titus, Paul Paul saw God's vindication of his apostleship and a triumph of God's grace in the hearts of the Corinthians, Paul is reminded afresh that God's power is able to overcome any and all human weaknesses. So Paul goes off into a section of thanksgiving here, and we call this the character of Paul's ministry. This takes us from 2.14 to 6.10. Paul begins to describe to the Corinthians what his ministry is like, what it's been like. Uh, they have a, a, an incorrect view of Paul and his apostleship. This is especially true in 1 Corinthians. Uh, they They just misunderstand exactly what's going on in Paul's life, what his ministry is about. Paul is going to try to describe to them in this section what his ministry is like, the suffering he has to go through, what his purposes are, and so forth. The first section here, 214 through 17, I've entitled, Paul's ministry was a sincere proclamation of the knowledge of Christ. He says in verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. Now, Paul draws upon 
the Roman concept of the triumph. The Roman Senate would often vote to a victorious general a triumph in the city of Rome. That would be a parade. That is, some general would conquer some land, he would come back to Rome, and he would march there in a chariot at the head of it, and he would be in triumph. People would be out there. It's like a ticker tape parade. They used to have in New York these ticker tape parades when Lindbergh, uh, uh, Lindbergh flew, you know, across the Atlantic. They came back when Eisenhower, uh, they won World War II. Eisenhower uh, had that ticker tape parade. Ed Martin was there, but I don't. Ed is, <laughs> Ed's not here, so we could ask him about that parade. But you know what I'm talking about? These parades where you they're triumphs. Well, the Roman Senate would vote these triumphs. Paul uses that language here, and he says. I'm trying to illustrate the joy we have in Christ because it's like we're in one of these triumphs who leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession. Now, in this triumph, you had slaves were brought. The slaves who were, the people who were, who were conquered were brought back as slaves. We're looked upon here as slaves, but we're people who are happy to be slaves because we've been bought by Christ, we've been conquered by Christ, He's our master. He's our Lord. We're marching with him in this triumph. And it also says, and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. During these triumphs, there was flowers thrown, there was perfume, there was incense. It was just a wonderful, triumphal thing. Verse 15, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. So Paul says, we Christians, as we go forward, we're an aroma. We spread. We have, we have something that we tell people, we show people by our lives and what we say. We have the message of Christ, and our lives have a certain character about them. And so as he says here, as I say, one, just like in 118, Paul divides mankind into two groups, those who are saved those who are being saved, and those who are perishing. So the gospel, as I say, divides. There's no middle ground. As faithful preachers and followers of Christ, the apostles themselves formed a sweet aroma of Christ arising up to God as a pleasing odor. So as we go forward, we're just we're sort of like that, aren't we? I mean, we go forward, we meet people, and you know what it's like, you know? They, if, you, if they find out you're a Christian, you've got the gospel... They, they may, they may, to them it may be a sweet aroma. They may be pleased by what you're saying. They may accept what you're saying. But to other, it's the aroma that brings death, actually, because they back away. I don't want any part of that. It's not for me. You know, they reject the gospel, and the rejection of that gospel is very unfortunate, as Paul says, it brings death. Verse 16b, and who is equal to such a task? I mean, what a task that is to think that you and I are people who are uh, Christ representatives here on earth. And we are, we are the people through whom most people will encounter the gospel. They'll encounter the gospel through us. That Remember Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred in the Indians, he once said that, uh, he once prayed, in his journal, he says, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. 
make me a fork that men must turn one way or another on facing Christ in me. Well, Paul says next, the ministry's best recommendation was the lives of the Corinthians converts. Verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, again, we're talking about the character of Paul's ministry. He says, first of all, it's very sincere proclamation of the truth. And it has life and death possibilities. Now, the best recommendation of our ministry is your lives. Remember, I keep saying... There are people in Corinth who question the authenticity of Paul. They did that in 1 Corinthians, question his authority, his rights as an apostle. And he says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Apparently people are saying, Paul is just this guy who's always commending himself. Or do we, like some people, need letters of recommendation? Now, Paul, these, these questions expect a negative answer. Are we beginning to... No, Paul says, I'm not trying to commend myself uh, at all. And do we need letters of recommendation? No, we don't need any letters of recommendation. Um, there, he says there are some people. Do we like some people need letters of recommendation? Uh, as we'll go along here, we'll see that there are, especially in verse chapters 10 through 12, there are some false teachers who have come into the church. These false teachers have a Jewish slant. They claim to be from Jerusalem. They claim to be representing the apostles in Jerusalem. And they are bringing letters, apparently, they say, of recommendation. Letters of recommendation were, not, were something that were used in the ancient church. Remember, in Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, uh, they come to a decision, and they write this letter to take to the Gentile churches. And they say, Paul. they mention Paul and Silas in the letter and say, Paul and Silas are here at the council, and they're going to bring this letter. Take, Paul takes this letter on the second missionary journey. So Paul is not totally against letters of recommendation, but what he's saying here is, you don't certainly need a letter of recommendation from me. That's, you, that wouldn't be necessary. Uh, as I mentioned here, uh, Paul's opponents apparently carried letters as their credentials, probably not from the three Jerusalem pillars, or the twelve, their letters came from the Pharisaic wing of the Jerusalem church whose Judaizers, those Judaizers who regarded the scrupulous observance of the Mosaic law as essential for salvation and were unable to distinguish between the law-abiding conduct of the twelve and the legalistic teaching. Verse 2, You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. Not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. I say, Paul now answers the last question in verse 1, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation? He insists that for him to carry a commendatory letters to the Corinthians would be superfluous. So he, the most complimentary letter he could possibly possess had already been written. I mean, he mentions this even in 1 Corinthians. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Remember I said Paul's apostleship is being questioned. Well, this is rather rather foolish. Here's the apostle Paul. He comes to Corinth. 
He brings them the gospel. They claim they're Christians. They claim they're spiritual people. Well, then you, you can't question the guy who brought the message and say he's a false teacher. You know, you, here, here's apostle. He, he brought you. You are, the, are you not the result of my work in the Lord? If some people say I'm not an apostle, certainly you must say I'm a representative of Christ because you accepted my message. You believe you have the truth. Well, this is what Paul is sort of saying here. The lives of the Corinthians, their changed lives, are the best recommendation. They're in a letter that could, anybody could read. The fact that, you know, we, you and I are regenerate people. We have been changed. That's really the best letter of recommendation our church could send out, is the lives of people. And that's what Paul is saying here. I don't need any kind of physical letter, anything written on tablets of stone. My letter is written on tablets of human heart. I mentioned on pay, uh, next, this contrast between the writing on the tablets of stone and on the human hearts is clearly an allusion to the prophetic description of the New Covenant. And we're going to come to that. But remember, in the New Covenant, remember we have the Mosaic Covenant given at Mount Sinai. Jeremiah talks about a new covenant. And in that covenant, he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah, and I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So Paul says there's coming a new covenant. Jeremiah says there's coming a new covenant that it's not going to be this external covenant written on stone, written on tablets. It's going to be written in their hearts. Now, this is a way of talking about regeneration, of being born again, written on the hearts. Well, I'm going to come back to that in just a second. But my point here is, um, as I say, this the illusion paves the way for Paul's description of himself and his co-workers as ministers of the new covenant and for the extended comparison and contrast between the ministry under the old and new covenants. So, we're getting into another digression. Let me explain how that works here. So, Paul is talking about the character of his ministry. The ministry was a sincere proclamation. The ministry's best recommendation was the lives of the Corinthian converts. But in saying that the Corinthian converts was the best recommendation, he says, I don't need a letter written on tablets of stone. When you hear that tablets of stone, you think about the Ten Commandments, right? The tablets of stone. But written on human hearts. That's that allusion to the new covenant. So now Paul's going to develop that with this next section, kind of a, this is a little side digression. We're going to start talking about what's the difference between Paul's ministry, the new covenant ministry, and the old covenant ministry, the ministry of Moses. What was the difference between Israel and the church, really? We're going to come to here. So, Paul says, I proclaim the new covenant. The first thing here is the source of Paul's confidence. Such conf confidence. Such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are confident in ourselves to proclaim anything for ourselves, but our confidence comes from God. I say here in verse 4, Paul says that his confidence before God in claiming that the Corinthians were a letter written by Christ validating his apostles' apostolic credentials came through Christ. It was not a pious wish, not imagination. In verse 5, still speaking of his confidence before God, Paul denies he has any ability to form a competent judgment on the results of his own ministry or any personal right to lay claim to the results of what was in reality God's work. 
His qualification and his source of his competence for the work of the ministry was not a natural ability. God was enabling him. Verse 6. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter. We're talking again about the written code. But of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul further describes his confidence by saying, it's God who has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. And the last part of verse 6, he says, not of a letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The letter refers back to the tablets of stone in verse 3. And it's the same as what that which was engraved in letters on stone in verse 7, as we'll see. Specifically, the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses. So basically what Paul is saying in this passage is that the Mosaic Law was temporary and has now come to an end. The same message of passages like Galatians 3, Romans 10, and so forth. So, Paul is talking about the New Covenant ministry. If we're in the New Covenant age, then the Old Covenant has ended. That means the Mosaic Law. That has come to an end, that covenant ministry. And Paul says it throughout the New Testament. Romans 10.4, Christ is the culmination or the end of the law. Romans 6.14, since you're no longer your master because you're not under law. 1 Corinthians 9.20, to the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law, though I myself as a Christian am not under the law. Because I'm in the new covenant ministry and the old covenant has passed away. I'm not under the law. So as to win those under the law. Before the coming of the faith we were held in custody under the law locked up until the faith that was to come should be revealed. So as Paul's contrasting the Old Covenant ministry, the covenant, uh, Moses, the Ten Commandments, we're not under that. Now, he's not disparaging the Mosaic Covenant or the law. You might think that because he says, verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. In verses 7 through 11, he's going to stress the glory that was the Old Covenant. That glory was associated with Moses. Moses had that glory on his face. It was a glorious covenant. But he's going to say there was a defect with the Old Covenant. And the defect was the human inability to obey that Old Covenant. Romans 3.20, Therefore no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law we become conscious of sin. All right. So what's wrong? What's wrong with the Old Covenant? What's the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant? The difference in the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, was given by God as Israel's constitution, as their civil, moral law, to govern and control them. They were under a theocracy. But the law didn't regenerate anybody. The law didn't make anybody a Christian. Didn't make anybody saved. So if you were an Old Testament person, you were a male, you were circumcised, you were in Israel, that didn't mean you were automatically a saved person. If To be saved, you had to believe in God. You had to have faith in God. You had to be saved by faith the same way same way as we're faith today, saved today. So faith was necessary for salvation in the Old Testament. It was not by keeping the law. No one was ever saved by keeping the law. So the problem with the Old Covenant, the Old Covenant inherent in it 
did not provide for regeneration. It didn't automatically mean that if you were a member of the Old Covenant community, the Mosaic community, you were saved. You weren't. If you were a member of Israel, you were not automatically saved. So the Old Covenant did not provide for salvation or regeneration automatically. One had to trust God. One had to believe. One had to have faith. And so Paul is talking about in the New Testament. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Now, that's what people think. That's what Jews thought. That's what Jews thought in Paul's day. Jews thought back then, if I keep the law of Moses good enough, you know, pretty good, then God will accept me into heaven. That's what everybody thinks outside of the Christian religion today. If I do this, if I am a pretty good person, if I keep the rules of the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church or the Koran, whatever I do, if I, if I keep them pretty good, then I'll be received into heaven. And so the problem with the Old Covenant was it generates in people's minds a kind of works religion, that if I can keep this law, I can be saved. And Paul says, no, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, the law, for the law, we become conscious of sin. So what the law says is, here's the Ten Commandments, and you can't keep them. You've broken them. You're conscious of sin. Because the law brings wrath. Why does it bring wrath? Because it shows that we're sinners. It shows that we're condemned. For if the law had been given that would have in part life, then righteousness certainly would have come by the law. If you could give somebody a law and say, keep this law and you'll go to heaven, righteousness would come by the law. But why doesn't it work? Because we're born depraved sinners, unable to please God. Because since the fall, we're all sinners. We can't keep God's commandments. We're unable to keep them perfectly. And because we can't keep them perfectly, we're condemned. So there's a big failure in the Old Testament law. It wasn't due to the law itself. The law was holy and righteous. It was due to us. We're born depraved sinners, unable to please God sufficiently. So, that's why God promised a new covenant. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not, by like, not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. The Mosaic covenant. Mount Sinai, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Hey, that's much better. That's regeneration. That's a change of heart, you see. God said the new covenant is going to be, everybody who's part of the new covenant is going to be regenerate. I'm going to put it in their hearts. I will be their God, they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. So here's the glory of the new covenant ministry that Paul is preaching. He's preaching salvation by faith, regeneration, and people who accept that become part of the new covenant. And the law is written in their hearts. So here we go. So the question is, that new covenant says, I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. How does that relate to you and me as Christians today? Well, here's the new covenant. It is going to be fulfilled, as God promised in Jeremiah, 
eschatologically. What does that mean? Future. Remember? We've got to have some Greek in here, remember? <laughs> well, in theology, all those divisions of theology, they all have Greek names. They divide them up. They call them pneumatology. That's the study of the Holy Spirit because pneuma is the Greek word for spirit. They call it anthropology, the study of man, because anthropos is the is the Greek word for man. So all the divisions of systematic theology have a Greek word for their name. Well, so does the last division. Prophecy, future things. Eschatos is the word for last. The end, the last. So the new covenant will be fulfilled in the future with Israel, as God promised. Romans 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. He's referring to the new covenant. So when Christ comes back and Israel is regathered, they'll turn to him and we'll have the new covenant instituted with Israel. But it's being participated in soteriologically. Soteriologically, soteria, that's the word for salvation. As far as salvation, we're getting the benefits of the new covenant, you and I, as far as our salvation is concerned. We're experiencing regeneration. Even though the new covenant was promised to Israel, ultimately will be fulfilled with Israel in all of its fullness, we're getting the salvific benefits. We're getting the benefits of salvation by grace through faith. And that's why Paul says he is a minister of the new covenant. As he says... In uh, verse 6, he has made us competent as ministers of the new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. So as Paul goes forward preaching the message of the gospel, the spirit goes forward regenerating people, writing God's law on their hearts, changing their hearts, so that they are able to please God. Well, the greater joy of the new covenant, 3, 7 through 11. I say so far in chapter 3... Paul's argument has progressed from the reflect idea of commendatory letters written on the hearts by the Spirit to his reflection on the new covenant promised by God through Jeremiah under which the law would be written on men's hearts. This now prompts Paul to compare the old and new economies. He's going to compare the Mosaic, what it was like under the Mosaic economy, and what it's like under the new covenant. And he's going to say the old covenant was from the very beginning was destined to fade away. It was temporary. It was not an eternal covenant. It was a con- what theologians call a conditional covenant. It was temporary. The new covenant, it's not. That's, that was God's ultimate destiny. So in verses 7 through 9, the remainder, Paul provides a commentary on selected portions of Exodus 34. Now that's where Moses went up to Mount Sinai, and when he comes back, his face is shining. He's been in the presence of God. And he puts a veil on his face when he talks to the people. And then when he goes into the tent of meeting, he takes that veil off and his face shines again. It shows the glory of that covenant. But then he puts that veil on. And Paul's going to say here, as I say, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets, his face shone so brightly that the Israelites could not look steadily. So Paul is arguing here, that if this kind of glory attended the giving of the law under the ministry or administration that brought death and condemns men, how much more glorious will be the ministry 
of the covenant that brings righteousness. Paul is going to talk about the temporary nature, the fading nature of the old covenant versus the new. Verse 10, for what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with, with surpassing glory. That seemed pretty great. If you were back there then, you thought, man, this is great. Moses come down, he's got this brightness. That was great. He says, it's nothing, man, compared to the new covenant. It's nothing. And what if it is, what if was transitory came with glory? How much greater is the glory of that which lasts? The new covenant is characterized by not simply greater glory, you see. It's just unbelievably because it brings regeneration. That, that is fading away. This is an eternal covenant according to Hebrews chapter 13. Well, in 12 through 18, he talks about the openness of the new covenant. Let me just say a few words about that. Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil on his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end that was passing away. So we, we have this boldness in the new covenant because we don't have to put a veil on our face. Verse 14, he says, But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their, their heart. So he's saying, it's just it's, it's like they can't understand. When the Old Covenant is read in the synagogue, the Jews don't really understand it because they're not regenerate. Even though that's a glorious thing, they, they were not regenerate. And so a veil sort of remains over them. That's, that's the dullness of being unsaved. We know what that's like. I say here in verse 14, Paul confirms that the problem was not the law, but with the people. Their minds were made dull, and this veil remains over them. Verse 16, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. So we're taking this language from Exodus 34, 34, like when Moses took, took off the veils. When a person turns to the Lord, then the veil of our heart, God takes about takes away that dullness, you know? I mean, we used to say, I don't understand. If you were an adult, especially, when you were saved, I don't understand this stuff. I don't get this stuff. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's dumb, stupid. But once you get saved, hey, it's great. It's great stuff, you know? Amen. That's right. That dullness is taken away. Verse 17, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. As I say here, Paul's point here is that, where the, that though the Spirit is the Lord who has brought who has the right to exercise authority. His presence brings liberation, not bondage, Romans 8.15. And finally, verse 18, And we all, who with unveiled faces, contemplates the Lord's glory. This is thought to be a, a very important verse on progressive sanctification. He's using the imagery of Moses and the mountain and all that, but think of what he's saying. We all, that's you and I as Christians, we, we have unveiled faces. Because we are regenerate. We can understand the things of God. We are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we see the Lord's glory, as we look into Scripture, as we see God, as we see Christ, we see the glory of Christ, we are being transformed as we read and understand into his image. That's what sanctification is about. We are being transformed into the image of Christ with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You better stop there because I've gone way over. Thank you very much.